The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Morning, everyone. Welcome back from spring break, and welcome to those who are viewing live stream. It's a very special chapel this morning, and normally uh, Dr. Williams would be here uh, doing the intro. Uh, but due to unforeseeable circumstances, he was not able to be here with us, and he absolutely regrets uh, not being able to do this intro, which I get the privilege of doing. And I think this one's a little bit harder on Dr. Williams than missing the first chapel of the semester. So this morning's a special chapel because um, many of you already know that this is um, Dr. Ed Hardesty's last chapel with us as a faculty member, full-time faculty member. We hope it's not the last chapel ever, but it is his last chapel uh, with us. And um, as many of you know, uh, Dr. Hardesty has been here quite a while. He's been here since 1991 when he joined the faculty. At that time, uh, part-time pastoring, part-time faculty member, maybe full-time ed pastoring. And um, when he uh, came on board uh, a little bit more full-time. He was working with what we called back then the Institute of Jewish Studies, which turned into the Bible in Israel program. And um, then he served with me in the first-year programs and then a full-time faculty member. And um, when, when uh, Dr. Hardesty joined the faculty in 1991, um, that's when I was serving out at our Wisconsin campus, and I didn't really get to know uh, Dr. Hardesty very well uh, during those early years, but um, our students who came from the Wisconsin campus to Langhorne would regularly tell me over and over, you've got to get Dr. Hardesty out to Wisconsin. His reputation uh, preceded him. And there's just a number of things that, um, on Instagram the other, the other night, I guess, there were a number of things uh, that were posted to the line, what do you love about Dr. Hardesty? And here are some of the comments. His kindness and how his class made me think about the Bible differently. How much he truly cares for his students. His absolutely iconic stories. He's a living example of how God uses trials to bring beauty. His authenticity genuine love for his students, and he's an incredibly deep wealth of wisdom. What isn't my favorite thing about Dr. Hardesty? And I finally got Dr. Hardesty out to the Wisconsin campus to teach, and everything that had preceded him, his reputation, the students absolutely loved him. Uh, he actually owns one of the iconic stories from the Wisconsin campus, but on that one, you'll have to talk to him personally about that one. And I just really appreciated from that time on, as I've got to know Dr. Hardesty uh, much better in the years that we've served together, I've just really grown to appreciate him very, very much. So thank you, Dr. Hardesty. Thank you, Ed, for your many years of service to the Lord here at Cairn. And at this time, I'd like to invite um, Dr. Keith Plummer, our Dean of the School of Divinity, and Dr. Hardesty up as we do a socially distanced prayer over Dr. Hardesty.
Please join us in praying. Our Heavenly Father, as part of your sovereign and merciful faithfulness about which we just sang, you cause our lives to cross the paths of others who help us to know you and to know you better. And we give you thanks for how it is that you have been faithful to Cairn by causing the the life and the path of Dr. Ed Hardesty to cross this institution's. Lord, I know that he is very uncomfortable with this, but we do this as an act of worship and thanksgiving to you, knowing that the faithfulness that has come forth from his life is because of your mercy towards him in Jesus Christ. And we do it because your word commands us to honor such servants, and so we do. We thank you for the fidelity that his life has demonstrated as a man after your own heart, as a faithful husband to his wife, Rachel, a dad to his kids, granddad to his grandchildren, a shepherd who desires to serve your people in such a way that you are glorified in their lives and that their hearts find rest in Jesus. We thank you for him as a teacher, an instructor, a lover of people, one from whom we have all learned much, and not only academically, but also devotionally, what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the mercy in his life that has made him willing to confess his faults and his sins, not only before you, but for, before us, and in so doing to give us hope that there is mercy to be found in you. Father, we do pray that as your son and your servant, our friend, our colleague, our teacher, comes before us now, that you would fill his heart by your spirit, that you would open his lips to bear testimony to your goodness and your faithfulness, and that, Lord, you would open our ears, fill us with your spirit so that we might hear what you have to say through his testimony to your grace in his life. And may we do so, Lord, in obedience to your word, which calls us to remember your leaders, those who taught the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their lives, and so imitate their faith. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, with gratitude. Amen. Can we not socially distance for just a minute? <laughs> Yeah. Welcome, Dr. Hart. Dr. Yeah. Hi. I started out as a child. <laughs> There's a couple things you need to know about my background. 
things that you don't know. I suspect that uh, what went on inside of me is common to most of you, at least on some level. But then on the other hand, everything that we say and do and all that comes to make us who we are, no matter what our station in life, it's all a combination of a multitude of different inputs, people, mentoring, craziness, disasters, catastrophes. Each of us in a very real sense is unique. We're one off. Uh, some of us would be a little more off than others. Uh, if my sister was here right now and heard me say how unique my situation was and that I'm one off, she'd be the one you would recognize immediately because she would be standing in the middle of the room with her arms stretched in the air, staring at the heavens going, thank you, Jesus, he's the only one like that. <laughs> ah. My mom and dad started life in a very difficult way. My dad was born in 1910, my mom in 1914. A few days after my mom was born as the youngest of 10 children on a farm in Southern Maryland, her mother died. The oldest child in the family at that point, 14 years old, Elizabeth, raised the kids as she could until my grandfather remarried some years later. My mom and her twin brother, just a few days old, were farmed out to other people in the area. Uh, different folks passed around from house to house until they found a home uh, to at least survive infancy. My dad, uh, when he was born second in the pecking order of four sons, his oldest brother died of pneumonia in his early teens. Uh, we're talking about very rural southern Maryland. No medicine, no paved roads, no inside plumbing. Quite a very different world than we have today. During World War II, his younger brother, one of two that were twins, was shot down over Cherbourg. Uh, no survivors in the aircraft. Uh, they sent him home with a flag draped over a coffin. His other brother, his twin, was missing from action when I was born. Uh, they didn't know whether he was alive. He eventually found his outfit. He had gotten separated, and uh, he grew uh, to be the uncle that I cherished for many, many years. Bottom line is, these two, before they got married, my mom and dad, also experienced in their teens the Great Depression. Farms were folding all around them. People were dying. There was no medication to help folks along the way. Many people lost everything they had. We moved to Washington when I was quite young. I was born in Washington, D.C. Uh, there weren't any hospitals in the area where uh, we lived at the time in Southern Maryland. And in the process of all that, my mother uh, became quite ill. At 10 years old, we nearly lost her. What we did lose was the house, all that the family had accumulated. We lost everything. My dad had been out on strike for 10 months at the time. It couldn't have occurred at a worse time. My mother took years to recuperate, multiple surgeries, multiple situations. So we moved to Baltimore, where I and my sister and my dad and my recuperating mother lived with an aunt, an aunt and an uncle that took care of us for three years until we could finally get back on our feet. 
As we began to get back on our feet, my dad decided he was going to try and go in business for himself. He invested everything we had left into that business, and he showed up at the shop one morning, and all the tools were gone. The gentleman he went in business with had cleaned out the bank accounts and had run away, and they never caught him. So once again, they lost everything. I explain that to you and share that with you because you need to understand the atmosphere of fear and insecurity in which I grew up. My mom loved us dearly. My dad was standoffish, very stiff. His father had been quite austere and quite cruel. He never learned how to express his love. For years, I thought my dad did not love me. We'll get to the other side of that story in a few minutes. All through elementary school, junior high and high school, I was dying on the inside, but acting out on the outside. You wouldn't have known what was going on inside of me. It's an awful thing to grow up in the midst of a box that you cannot get out of that's full of fear, insecurity. When you're constantly hearing, don't do that, you'll get hurt. Don't go there, that won't work. Don't try that, you'll lose everything. Be careful, watch out, back off. Don't risk it, it's not worth it. That begins to sink into your soul after a while. My sister was trapped in that prison for many, many years. Thankfully, the Lord has delivered her from that. It took some other events to free me from that kind of background. But on the outside, laughing, always having fun. On the inside, dying and falling apart daily. I had virtually no friends. I was the geek in the neighborhood. The tall, skinny kid that could almost do things properly. Almost. My friends were the 600 acres of woods behind our house in suburban Maryland. The Lord did something when we moved to Baltimore that was a godsend for me. They built a public library three blocks from our house. So now I had two friends. The woods and the young adult section of that library. I think I read everything in it in the next three years. Again, junior high and high school, lots of acquaintances, no friends. Inside, I'm falling apart. Outside, you would have thought, this is the most gregarious young man you've ever met. And then Lyndon Johnson, after starting college, uh, decided I should see more of the world. It was during the big spin-up of Vietnam. So in my junior year at University of Baltimore in business management, corporate finance, headed for law school afterwards, the world desperately needs another lawyer, okay? <laughs> Lyndon Johnson decided through the man on the selective service board that lived down the street, you're on next month's list, young man. You're going to get drafted. So rather than get drafted for two years, I did the most intelligent thing around. I enlisted for four years. Went in the Air Force because I always loved flying. Never quite could nail things down. But when I got into the military, I was already been told by everyone at home and my surviving uncle of World War II, keep your mouth shut, do your job, don't volunteer for anything, don't risk it, etc., 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 because he came from that background as well and he had already lost two brothers. 
At 14, because of the masses' losses in my father's life and his austere lifestyle, he had his first heart attack, 14 when I was. For the next 20 years, he slowly died of heart disease and multiple heart attacks. So when I went in the military and I heard all those different people echoing the same comment, don't volunteer, don't volunteer, don't volunteer, hold back, hold back, don't risk it, don't risk it. I decided that was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard in my life. I refused to be controlled by the fear that I carried around in my heart and my soul all the time. If there was a time where I was going to risk it, I was going to be everything to everyone as much as possible. So starting with basic training, whenever someone needed a volunteer for something, my hand was up first. I didn't suck up to anybody. I didn't try and make a, you know, some deal with someone. I worked hard, I got through it, and I wanted everyone to know, this guy you can depend on. He's going to conquer this fear. See, at seven years old, I came to know the Lord. But I certainly didn't have an intimate relationship with the Lord. And then the Lord took me to Texas, Colorado, Mississippi, and I was a weapons specialist, everything from thermonuclear devices down to small sidearms. That's what I did. They needed desperately weapons people in that day, so they lent me out to a number of different organizations, and I ended up for six months on Guam, loading B-52s for, B uh, for Vietnam. Some of that time during Typhoon of Axe, we were in uh, Utapau, Thailand, uh, doing the same thing. Three months in Okinawa during Kisan and the Tet Offensive in 1968. And following the volunteer line that I had set for myself as soon as I got back from all those lend-lease things where I was TDY, where they were lending me to other people because they needed an extra set of skilled hands, I volunteered for Vietnam. Two months later, I was in Da Nang air rescue. That was all conventional weapons. There weren't any thermonuclear devices there. But in the process of all that, our job was to go in afterwards. Our job was to clean up the mess, to, to salvage what we could, to get people out alive if possible, to treat them until, until we got to an evac unit and drop them off at a hospital. Sometimes it was possible to save their lives, and sometimes it was not. The unadvertised portion of that mission was to extract deeply inserted teams, special forces, uh, CIA, all sorts of things went down. I worked hard. I cared deeply. It broke my heart. I was crushed by the death all around me, some of it at my own hand. Several years ago, I was allowed to return to Vietnam. Took some of you with me. I went to the place where we had bombed for months. I saw the other end of what I did. I talked to the people. I don't know what you know about television and movies and stories and books and all the glory mongers that try to dandy up war. 
but it is hell on earth. It's ugly, it's nasty, it's destructive, there's no redeeming value to it. And it is the absolute emblem of a fallen world. For there are people who will not sit down and talk, nor will they leave you alone. There is evil of such a content in this world that it can only be stopped by something that appears to be evil, yet is righteous at its core. I remember the startling effect in my life it had when I realized we live in a fallen world where killing is necessary. And that was the last straw. That broke me. I know I talk about this from time to time in the classroom. You have to understand that at the other end of a long series of events, the Lord brought me to the end of myself. I know it's out of context. I know it's borrowing. I know it's interpretation from the area of emotion. But Jeremiah, in the midst of the demise of Jerusalem, when things are being destroyed all around him, this was his comment, and I just glommed onto it like someone who had no notion of things in context. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and to give you a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with your whole heart. I so can identify with Jeremiah in these words. Remember my affliction, Lord, and my wandering in the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind, and therefore I hope the Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. His compassions never fail they are new every morning, for great is thy faithfulness. What I didn't realize at the time was I was getting a crash course in the real context of Romans 8, 28 and following. All things work together for good? Could have fooled me. All things work together for good? To those who are called according to his purpose? Please don't read 28 without 29. What is the purpose that that envisions? That whatever is necessary to produce Christ's likeness in your life and mine, those who have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ are in the business of being transformed into that image. And if that means both of your legs need to be broken, you better find some plaster because Jesus is going to break your legs. If that means a still small voice can move you in the right direction, that also is true. I suggest to you, for people as hard-headed and as geeky and as messed up inside as I was, it takes baseball bats to take care of that. He's not at all bashful about the transformation process. <laughs> you see, we use those verses as kind of band-aids on things we can't explain. Well, all things work together for good, this, that, and the other. Glibly sounding that out. I've had a 75-year crash chorus in that. And you're in the process, too. 
it is not this. It's this. On some level, men and women, you need to understand and embrace the notion your fault, my fault, nobody's fault. Sinful posture, righteousness, gloriously hallowed, everything will be used to produce Christ-likeness in you and me. Question is, are we hauling around so much baggage and scar tissue that the journey is extremely difficult? There was a woman that was writing me. December 1st, I get a letter, 1968. I don't know you and you don't know me, but my grandmother knows your aunt, and I'm going, where is this going? <laughs> they thought it'd be really cool if you had somebody to write to. So I wrote, and she wrote, and I wrote, and she wrote, and I sent pictures, and she sent pictures, and we made little three-inch reel-to-reel tapes because cassettes had not yet been invented. <laughs> Back and forth this went. All those letters she kept... They all had to be numbered because sometimes the mail was pretty messy out in the field. <laughs> you know, a truck would show up with a bag in the back and some guy would go, Hardesty, here's 10 for you. You know, that was about the mail delivery. So you number them all. She keeps them in a big box at home. There's 200 and some letters. The boxes marked evidence. I fell in love with her and knew her better in the 10 months that we wrote than if I had dated her for three or four years without all the angst and nonsense of the dating process. That was a gift from God. Got home, spent 35 of my 37 days leave with Rachel. That was in September. October, I went to my last duty station. November, I asked her to marry me. December, I gave her a ring. February, I got out of the military. The following June, we were married. And this coming June, that's 51 years ago. <laughs> Three kids, the third of which is the reason that God gave us Jonathan so that we'd understand parenting. The other two were very easy. <laughs> I still think James Dobson wrote the book Dare to Discipline about my third child. <laughs> All married in the Lord. Most of them have come through here on one level or another, as well as uh, one of my grandsons. Eight grandchildren. In the midst of learning that the Lord was in control, loving children, loving my wife, experiencing the love that I had not experienced as a child except through my mom. Understanding that people come to the equation with all sorts of difficulties and halting things that move them and, 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 and limit them. My mom went to the eighth grade and no further. My dad never graduated from high school. He was a laborer for Bethlehem Steel. He only went to the 11th grade. Neither had an education. Neither could do well in terms of helping us along the way in that regard. We grubbled for every cent we had. My mom invented instant tomato soup. It's a bottle of ketchup. Add hot water. On and on it went. I know what it is to have lost everything on multiple occasions. And I also know what it is that when you finally come to the end of yourself, Jesus says, are you listening now? Do I have your attention yet? Are you ready to lay all that garbage down? 
Multiple times since then, the opportunity has been there for him to break my heart. And he loves me so much, he's done it every time. I have eight grandchildren. We've also lost eight children. I'll never be the great scholar, the linguist, the super Bible teacher, the book writer, the this guy, the that guy, the other guy. I'll never have the giant church. There's been multiple ones of that, and I've had the opportunity to plant three of them. It's a joyous, joyous journey along the way. Where did I learn these things? 1972, PCB. We started over. I was 27, had a 15-month-old son, a fairly new wife of just a couple years, and $35 in my pocket, and we drove up to 18th and Arch in Philadelphia with nothing and started over. Did the Lord supply? Oh, yes. How great is his faithfulness? Enormous. Far beyond your expectations. Abundant beyond anything you ever thought. There's about 15 to 20 years of my life that's pretty much a blur because I was working two, three, four jobs just to try and stay alive, keep the family. Now you got two kids. So we leave PCB and we head for Dallas Seminary. I was so well healed and so well off financially and everything else that we managed to cram the four-year program into five. Now I've got three kids. My dad says, every time you move, you have a child. Stop moving. Just before we finished Dallas, my dad died. I got a phone call one morning from my brother-in-law. First person I called was a man that's marked and shaped me. His name is Howard Hendricks. Howie Prof. My dad's gone. He said, praise the Lord, his pain is gone too. And you know what's cool? He got saved while I was in Vietnam. And when I came home, the father-son relationship that was never there, God gave us those years back. It's amazing what brokenness will do for you. I remember if my ordination council my home pastor was on that board, and he reminded me of something that had happened years ago. When I first went to PCB, I was, all I was the guy in the front row with the hand up, taking notes as fast as you could go. You know, the geek in the classroom, that was me. I was like a sponge, just give it to me. You know, give it to me. Have you read Dr. So-and-so? Have you heard such-and-such? -such? Who gives a rip about that? What's the text say? I want to know what it says. Tell me what it says. And his father... His father, the guy named Kaywood back there, refused to give us any answers. What would he say? Read this, study this, outline that, come back, then we'll talk. Of course, you'd already found it for yourself. John Kaywood's gift was his ability to incite in his students a sense of study and moving forward and acquiring scripture so it's theirs and not somebody else's notes. Where's all this take me? To the flat-out love of my life. I was looking for that the whole time. So I'm teaching at PCB, which became PBU, which became Karen, which became what's next? I don't know.
May Stewart, one of the dear saints that is very much the foundation of this school, came up to me and said, you've never been to Israel. You need to go to Israel. And that summer, I ended up at Jerusalem University College for the summer. Two years later, I ended up there another summer. The year after that, another summer. And then on five different separate archaeological digs. No, make that seven. <laughs> and then leading tours and understanding the land and the relationship of the geography, the geology, the history, the people with the background of our Bible. And my Bible just came alive. I was corrected many times by Paul Wright, the director of Jerusalem University. Bible doesn't need to come alive. You came alive to it. I said, well, that sounds very familiar because when I first started PCB, I went home and said to my home pastor, how come I had to go to Bible college to hear this stuff for the first time? And his response to me was, you're not hearing it for the first time. You're listening for the first time. How can I tie all this together? How do you cram 75 years into 25 minutes? I discovered the great loves in my life once the Lord had broken me and kept me that way. This self-revelation of God. Do you know how precious this is? Men and women who've given their lives that the Spirit would have something to use in my life to help me see and understand. The context of this book in its people, its ethos, the geography, the geology. Geography drives the narrative. You understand that. To see it in its setting, to see it fleshed out in all its beauty, to walk the land with a map in one hand and a Bible in the other, you can be a meaningful, growing, mature, and, and viable Christian without ever having set foot in Israel. But oh my, did it turn my heart upside down and inside out. I've never been the same since. But there's one great love that still had to be discovered, and that came gradually from 1991 on. I'm sorry, this sounds rather self-serving. It's the sort of thing that I'm supposed to say, I guess. Why am I here? Why have I done this so many years? You. 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 I've had the privilege of rubbing shoulders with some immense people on the planet, with some marvelously lettered individuals who I honor and respect. They've marked me up in many different ways, but not even remotely the way you have. You see, I see my geekiness in a lot of you. I see my broken heart in a lot of you. I see the disasters that I lived through, the blood and the death, 
the catastrophes, the broken homes, the loss of everything. I see that in you. Why did God break me? To make me the man that I am. What has that to do with my vocation, my chosen privileged career? He broke me so that I can see the brokenness in you. I don't understand your whole situation. I don't know where you came from. I don't know what your created mess of a life or its successes might look like from your point of view. But I do know this. He will have his way. He will give you that lifelong crash course in all things work together to create the image of his beautiful son in each of you. And I purposed in my heart 30 years ago, God, if you give me the privilege of standing in a classroom and opening this book to the brothers and sisters, I will seek to meet all the needs that you reveal to me and help them heal like you healed me. I thank you for that privilege. So much to say. My heart's very full right now. Indulge me for one more time, please. My wife tells me I must do this. It's who I am. Numbers chapter 6 was delivered at the foot of Sinai. The Lord required the high priest Aaron to bless the people. And he said, when you bless them, bless them in this manner. So he held up his hands, just like Leonard Nimoy in Star Trek. This isn't the Vulcan greeting, but it does mean live long and prosper, because it's the first letter of Shaddai, God Almighty. And when the rabbi or the priest stands before the people, and I am a royal priest after the order of Jesus Christ, the one from Melchizedek, I can stand and hold my hands above you in terms of Shaddai, the Almighty wishes to bless you once again. Numbers chapter 6, please indulge me for just a moment. Yorechecha Adonai ve'ishmerecha. Ya'er Adonai p'nabelecha mihunecha. Yisa Adonai. P'nabelecha v'lesem lecha. Shalom. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. May he raise his countenance over you and grant you his peace. And he already has in Jesus. Thank you all. You're dismissed. Let me go hide. <laughs> go, 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 go.